Good morning. I'd like to uh, begin a tradition at Westmont. It's something which I started at Gordon College and which was promptly dropped the minute I left. So I think I have the right to restart it here and you have the right to be skeptical. It's not a very exciting tradition, I admit, but I enjoyed it. Hey, I'm the provost, whatever that means. <laughs> so what's the tradition? The tradition is that, as a general rule, whenever the provost speaks in chapel, he doesn't get to choose his own topic, nor does the chaplain, nor does anyone else who is properly employed at Westmont College. Instead, when the provost speaks, the topic will be determined by you, student's choice. Not that some of you aren't properly employed at the college, by the way. Now, no doubt, two questions come immediately to mind. First, why am I doing this? And second, how am I going to do this? There are, after all, over 1,200 of you, and in fact, a little over, as we know. So who gets to decide? Well, that's the easy one. I'm going to let WCSA decide not the topic, but the method for determining who gets to choose the topic each time. Page Hall can't pick the topic each time, by the way, nor can the basketball team. A different group needs to be chosen, but I'll let WCSA decide who gets to choose. Two other requests before I get myself into trouble here. First, let's not turn this into stump the provost, okay? Let's face it, if your goal is to pick some obscure topic that I'll never figure out, then you will clearly succeed and we'll all be in trouble. The library is loaded with subjects about which I am relatively ignorant. So let's be real, okay? Second request, I would greatly appreciate it if you didn't ask me to defend the existence of various sundry rules we have around here. like. Why do we have a 4.0 grading system? Or why does the library close at such and such an hour? Or why are the speed bumps in the DC parking lot as tall as Mount Everest? <laughs> I don't know. Who knows? Besides, I'd like to deal with questions and topics that are important to you, that you really care about, and which, shall we say, have eternal significance. Let's make this a time that is worthwhile for you and for me. Agreed? Bless you. Okay, the other question. Why am I doing this? That will require a bit more explanation and indeed will move us into the topic for the morning. The story begins about four years ago with me deep into a conversation with a student who was also a pretty good friend. I'm not sure why we were talking, what we were talking about at this particular time but, as I recall, I was just being my old sweet self, trying to give him a few words of advice, when he suddenly burst in with this comment. You know what, Dr. Gady? Sometimes I get a bit tired of everyone talking at me all the time. My friends tell me what they think I should know. The faculty teach me what they think I should know. And chapel speakers talk about what they think I should know. It's all well and good, I'm learning some important stuff, but no one seems to be addressing the issues that are of concern to me. Well, I was feeling pretty confident that day and trying to be a nice guy, and so I said, okay, I'll tell you what I'm gonna do. 
Next month, I will be speaking in chapel. My assigned topic is Surprised by God, but since that's the, topic, that's the title of one of my books, I suspect that means that I can talk about anything I want. So, tell me, good friend, what would you like for me to talk about? Anything you want, you name it, I'll speak on it. He thought for a second, and then he blurted out, homosexuality. After I regained consciousness, <laughs> I repeated the question, hoping that perhaps my ears had deceived me. Again, he said, homosexuality. But this time, I detected some hesitation in his reply, or hoped I did. So I said, hey, there's no hurry here. Think it over for a week. <laughs> you don't want to rush your reply. And so he did precisely that, waiting a week before he made another appointment. Well, I said when he finally made himself comfortable in my office, have you come to any conclusions? What would you like for me to talk about? Yes, he said, I changed my mind. I've decided you should speak on the topic of dating. Dating, I moaned. You go from homosexuality to dating? Anyway, what do I know about dating? I haven't dated in decades. That's all right, he said. No one around here has dated in decades either. <laughs> but, but dating, I stuttered. Where do you come up with these topics anyway? What about something easy like racism or world poverty? No, he said calmly. I think you should talk about dating. Or we could go back to homosexuality if you prefer. <laughs> but one of the two. That's what I need some help on. Unless, of course, you don't really want to address my needs. <laughs> no, no, I said. Lots of guilt, you know. I'll do it. I just don't know what I'm going to say. In the weeks that followed, I pondered my fate, at first trying to find some way out, but then trying to figure out what I could possibly say about dating. I mean, I didn't even know college students actually dated anymore. Don't you just sort of move around in herds and moo? <laughs> Does anyone actually date? Eventually, however, it dawned on me that there was a connection between my friend's two topics, and that perhaps the issue he really wanted addressed wasn't dating at all, or even homosexuality, but simply the topic of sex. That, unfortunately, is like going from the frying pan to the fire for me. Not that I don't know anything about sex. I went to college too, you know. The problem isn't knowing about sex. It's talking about sex. My former students will tell you that whenever the subject comes up in class, I immediately break into a cold sweat and change the subject. It's not because I have anything against sex per se, I just don't think of it as a verbal thing. Whatever the case, I concluded that sex was the underlying issue, and thus that is what I wound up talking about in chapel the next month. And that's what began the tradition of students' choice thereafter. And if you don't mind, sort of in honor of my friend who sparked the idea in the first place, that's what I'd like to talk about this morning as well. I will also touch upon the topics of dating and homosexuality. Let me reword that. I also plan to discuss dating and homosexuality, but only as derivative issues. The place we need to begin, the big enchilada, 
to sex. Let me start. <laughs> Let me start by reading a passage from 1 Corinthians 13, with which you are familiar. Love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never ends. I want to start with two propositions that were routinely denied when I was growing up, but which I have discovered are true nevertheless. First proposition, sex is good. Second proposition, it ain't all that good. One of the things I learned quite early in life is that there is just something a bit different about sex. For one thing, you don't talk about it at the dinner table. No one says, you know, I was having sex today and the funniest thing happened. <laughs> you just don't do that. Unless, of course, you're watching Oprah or Donahue or some other person who takes pleasure in emotional striptease. But the rest of the time, when you're in the real world talking with real people, sex is not a matter of routine conversation. And on the whole, I think most of us are glad about that. Nevertheless, it gives children something of a problem, because they do think about sex a lot, especially as the hormones begin to flow, and especially in this culture where sexuality is so often flaunted and used. Though we don't talk about sex at the dinner table, we watch television and movies and advertisements that are simply dripping with sexual messages, most of which are aimed at getting us to buy something or do something, and all of which are attempting to engage us emotionally. And so we are engaged most of the time on a daily basis, especially when we're young, when the hormones are on the move and we're not. And so what happens? Well, what happens, I think, is that children conclude that sex must be incredibly wonderful, that's why we think about it all the time, and incredibly evil, that's why we don't talk about it much. That is especially probable, I think, in Christian homes where sex is likely to be discussed less than normal, but where people are nevertheless fully absorbed in the values of the culture. I don't mean, by the way, that this is how we verbalize it. Few of us would admit to such a double standard. But deep in our consciousness, it is there nevertheless. On the one hand, we think that a good round of sex with a partner of choice is likely to be the best thing this side of heaven. On the other hand, what a despicable thing that would be. What a deliciously despicable thing that would be. When we check a reliable source on truth and wisdom, however, I'm suggesting the Bible here, what we discover is that neither conclusion is justified. 
In the first place, there is nothing evil about sex whatsoever. The creation story in both Genesis 1 and 2 makes clear that God created us as sexual beings, and this was a part of his good plan. We were to be fruitful and multiply, and we were to be naked and not ashamed. In other words, we were created to have sex and enjoy its consequences, and God said, this is good. The problem, of course, comes after sin, after the fall, after sin invades our domain, but that doesn't change the basic nature of sex. Sex is still good. What the fall changes is the way we think about and use sex, which gets us to the second point. Sex ain't all that good. Of course, when I use good here, I don't mean in the qualitative sense that God used it when describing his creation. Sex is a qualitatively good thing. But it is not the end all, not the front, final frontier, not the surest route to happiness that we are sometimes led to believe. It is not, to put it more precisely, a true end that human beings were designed to pursue. Rather, it is more properly a means to an end, something that ought to be placed in service to something else. Let me ask you a question. Why do you think sex is so important? Don't say anything. Just think about that one for a second. Why do you think sex is so important? At first blush, that seems like a dumb question, doesn't it? It's fun, pleasurable, enjoyable. Anybody knows that. True enough. But so is sliding into a hot tub of water at the end of a day, or savoring a warm lobster dripping with melted butter or sitting on the toilet, for that matter. <laughs> Those are all pretty good, right? You enjoy them, happy to have them, even look forward to them from time to time. But tell me, do you think about them constantly? Do you make them the center of your life so that they determine how you dress, what you say, and how you act? or to be a bit more brutal, would you jump into a hot tub if you thought you might get pregnant? Or would you eat a lobster if you thought you might get AIDS? Well, of course not. You wouldn't even consider it. And similarly, very few of us would allow our lives to revolve around hot baths or lobster or any of the other good pleasures that God in his graciousness has given us. But we do with, when the pleasure is sex. Now, why is that? Why this special fascination with sex? I want to suggest that it has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with the physical pleasure of sex and everything, everything to do with its meaning. Sex means more to us than a hot bath, and it's supposed to. Sex is supposed to mean that you and another have become one, a union, a partnership. It means that you have given yourselves to one another completely, without reservation. It is that moment when we can legitimately pretend to be back in the garden before the fall, with Adam, like Adam and Eve, enjoying one another's nakedness and not being ashamed. And precisely because sex and its meaningfulness gets us so close to the garden, its meaningful distortion, I think, is such a prize 
and such a necessity for the evil one. Because if he wins here, he, if he can distort the meaning of sex for us, then he has ruined one of our best opportunities to know and rejoice in the intentions of the Creator. And so I think it is not surprising that we are pretty stupid where sex is concerned and have come to believe a whole cadre of lies in this culture about sex. And the first, the first lie is that sex is a mere physical act without any ultimate meaning. We know that this is a lie by virtue of how we act. No one behaves as if sex is just a good lobster, and yet we justify its abuse in precisely those terms, calling it an urge or a need that must be satisfied. And then having satisfied it in any manner we can, laughing it off as sowing our wild oats. We follow that up with a second contradictory but equally fallacious assumption that the joy of sex is dependent upon competition, that the only good sex is that which comes at the end of a game of cat and mouse. We assume that the harder the chase and the more attractive the objective, the more enjoyable the catch. But instead, all we get are frustrated cats and dead mice. And finally, we come to the most tempting lie of all, the one that I think is most seductive in a community like this, the idea that sex is an expression of love and therefore appropriate wherever and whenever true love exists. This is the standard typically used in our culture, and it accounts for most of the, quote, good sex that we see on television or in the theater. And generally, people like you and me, we buy into it. Indeed, it is such a relief and such a departure from the various kinds of debauched sex that we have to put up with that it's almost a comfort when it occurs. I can't tell you how many times I have found myself sitting in a theater rooting for sex and love to be enjoined rather than separated, only to discover in the end that I have been rooting for adultery. How can that be? Well, it can be, because this kind of sex substantially buys into a biblical view of sexuality, I think. To say that sex ought to be an expression of love is to admit that sex is special, something set apart, even holy. And that's right. To say that it is special, moreover, is to admit that, it has se that sex has meaning and that its meaning needs to be paid attention to. You can't just have sex whenever and with whomever you wish. That, too, is correct. Finally, it attempts to connect the meaning of sex with the notion of love, a rather important concept in a biblical worldview. So all in all, to say that sex ought to be an expression of love is to move, I think, in the right direction. But once we move down that path, we seem to get ourselves in all kinds of trouble. I have a friend who used that idea to justify dissolving a marriage, which he himself admitted was a good one, in order to begin a relationship with someone new. After all, he said, he no longer felt passionately in love with his wife, and he was, on the other hand, head over heels in love with another woman. Since sex is an expression of love, how could he not express himself sexually in the new relationship? And though he still cared for his wife, the flame was gone. How could he carry on a fulfilling sexual relationship with her, he said. True love demanded it. For him, it was the only honest thing to do.
The same idea that sex ought to be an expression of love constitutes the justification for any number of sexual relationships before marriage as well, doesn't it? Think of how sex is portrayed in the best movies these days, or in the best television programs, or to go from fiction to fact. Think about your own friends and acquaintances who are sexually active. Don't most of them justify their activity on the basis of love? And didn't they do that with the previous partner and the one before that? The point is, the idea that sex is an expression of love may give sex all kinds of meaning and may make us feel very good about the kinds of relationships we get ourselves into, but from the outside it doesn't seem to be much different than sex practiced for any other reason. It still justifies sex on demand, it still takes sex out of marriage, and it still doesn't look anything like the concept God had in mind when he created us in the first place. In other words, though it seems beautiful and meaningful, it still doesn't get us back to the garden. Indeed, it leaves us stuck in a world where sex becomes a vehicle for tearing families and relationships apart, for practicing serial monogamy, all in the name of love. Something is wrong. What is it? Well, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking the problem here is that while the connection between love and sex is a good one, not all love should be expressed sexually. Right? Thus, the reason some folks get into difficulty is that they make the wrong choices about when love should and shouldn't result in sex. I don't think so. I don't think the problem with the love and sex thesis is simply a matter of timing. The problem, I believe, is the thesis itself. Indeed, I want to suggest, as blasphemous as it may seem, that the pairing of love and sex is quite wrong, at least wrong, given the way we tend to define our terms. The problem here is our understanding of the term love. As we tend to use the concept, love for us is a feeling, it's an emotion. For that reason, we talk about falling in love, as if we had no choice in the matter. We're smitten, our hearts are touched, and suddenly, we're in love. Now, there's nothing wrong with the feeling of love. In fact, I'm all in favor of warm hearts, have one myself. But to make that kind of love the basis for sex is dangerous because fleet feelings are flighty. They change, and they can justify sex with any number of people and places and things, I would guess. And they do. The purpose of sex, I would contend, is not your feelings, but the feelings of someone else. It exists not to make you feel a certain way, but to make someone else feel a certain way. Sex, in a nutshell, that would be difficult. Let me start over. Sex, <laughs> sex is not a feeling. Sex is a gift. It's a gift of love from you to someone else. It is not aimed at receiving something as much as giving something. The purpose of sex is charity. For that reason, sex at its best is not driven by feelings of smittenness or stomach butterflies or thumping hearts, all of which have to do with you, how, make, how someone makes you feel, and nine times out of ten are based upon how popular that certain person is or what a great catch they are, 
or how in any number of ways they make you feel rather proud of yourself for having landed such a hunk, such a babe, such a bod. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that these feelings are illegitimate. They may or may not be. To be honest with you, it doesn't matter much because you're going to have them anyway. What's wrong here is not the feeling, but the connection between the feeling of love and sex, and the idea that such feelings ought to be the justification for and eventually result in a sexual relationship. Why do I say that? Well, look around you. You live in a culture that has made the connection between feelings and sex paramount. So you tell me, how's it going? Are people feeling good about their sexuality? Are relationships stronger than ever? Is the family doing well? Is marriage a source of happiness and fulfillment for most people? Let's bring it a little closer to home. How's the assumption about sex and feelings working out on this campus? Is courtship going well? Are males and females relating to each other as human beings created in the image of God? Do lovers have respect for one another? Do they treat each other with mutual care, gentleness, kindness? Do dating relationships build one another up, or do they destroy? Are values being upheld? Is righteousness being maintained? And to bring it all the way home, how are you feeling about your sexuality, your sexual life, past, present, and future? Is the assumption that sex and feelings go together working out well for you? How's it working out for the object of your affections? Is he or she content with their spirituality? Sexuality, excuse me. Are you content? Will you be content if you get married? If you don't? Another question. How does the Bible define love? Is it viewed primarily as a feeling which you have, or is it something that you do, that you give? Listen again to the Apostle Paul as he describes love in his first letter to the Corinthians, the one I read before. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never ends. What is striking to me about that list is that almost every one of the things Paul says love is not relates to a feeling about the self. Did you notice that? Love does not envy or boast. It is not proud, rude, or self-seeking. Notice the focus there is on self. Envy and pride are feelings that I have about myself based upon how I stack up against others. Now listen again to what love is. Love is patient and kind. It protects, trusts, hopes, perseveres. Those are all qualities that relate not to how we feel about ourselves, but how we treat others. We are patient and kind to others. We protect and trust others. Love moves us away from navel-gazing, away from self-absorption, away from being consumed with our own feelings. And so what we discover, surprise of surprises, 
is that when sex and love are brought together in a biblical framework, it means almost exactly the opposite of what our culture says it means. Sex rooted in love doesn't have much to do with how you feel, but it has everything, everything to do with the well-being of the one you love. For this reason, feeling-based sex, which our culture advocates, routinely generates every one of the negative characteristics mentioned by Paul. Envy, pride, rudeness, boasting, self-seeking. That almost sounds like a compendium of modern sexuality, doesn't it? And it's exactly what the apostle says love is not. Love-based sex, on the other hand, is patient. It can wait until it's right. No problem. It is kind. It would never push someone beyond their standards, much less one's own. It protects, protects one's reputation, protects one's honor, protects one's safety, wouldn't harm a flea. Love-based sex is trusting. Since it isn't based on competition, it doesn't worry about what has happened in the past, nor does it assume the worst for the present. Why? Because in the words of Paul, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love-based sex hopes. It hopes for the best for the other person, even if, heaven forbid, the best might mean not me. Love-based sex perseveres. It is not a one-night stand or even a long-term relationship. Love-based sex perseveres forever because love never ends. Finally, love-based sex rejoices in the truth. It is sort of odd to be talking about sex and truth in the same line, isn't it? What's truth got to do with it, Paul? Well, biblical love has everything in the world to do with truth. And what is the truth that provides the foundation for love-based sex? I think it's simply this. When God created the heavens and the earth, he made humans, like all the other animals, sexual beings. And he said, that's good. But for us, for those he created in his own image, for us he gave sex a special meaning. That's why your cocker spaniel only has sex when she's in heat, and you think about it all the time. Unlike your spaniel, sex is meaningful to you. And what is the meaning and purpose your creator intended? That sex should be an expression of God's love between a man and a woman who leave their parents and become one flesh. For that reason, it is patient and kind. It protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres. And of course, it never ends. When appreciated in that way, sex brings life, just like our Creator intended. When it isn't, it brings death. And that's the truth in which love-based sex rejoices. Whoops, I forgot to talk about dating and homosexuality. Or did I? Let us pray. Lord, we are all here this morning, we th each of us, with our own sexual histories, each with our own worries and regrets, hopes and dreams. 
And there is not one of us, Lord, not one, that doesn't have an unexpressed regret where sex is concerned or an inexpressible dream. Lord, right now we dump all that before you, every regret, every dream. You know about them anyway, so we might as well be honest about it. We lay them at your feet. We confess our wrongdoing, where that is the case. We confess our stupidity, our pride, our envy, our boasting, our lack of kindness, our lack of love. We confess something else as well, however. We confess that you are the Lord of life, the author of creation, who loves to forgive, loves to restore, and loves to redeem his creation. Redeem our sexuality this morning, O Father. Imprint upon our minds that it is good, that it comes from you. Impress upon our hearts that its purpose is love. And help us to understand that it is forever, as are you, and as we will be because of Jesus, in whose name we do gratefully pray. Amen. Have a good day.